Um, and thanks to all of you who've joined. I'm uh, actually delighted to see how many people have joined us live. Um, and I'm sure a lot more will see this uh, in recording. Um, since this is the first in the series, um, I want to say just a little bit about it. Um, it's been my observation that uh, that people like really simplified hero stories. And people like to believe that Thomas Edison invented a million different things, um, when in fact his biggest invention was the research lab um, and the idea of taking credit for absolutely everything that was invented in it. Um, I at least would love to be able to talk to some of the other geniuses uh, from Thomas Edison's lab and find out their perspective on some of the amazing things that happened there. Um, similarly, um, by what uh, my colleague uh, Paul Resnick calls the power law of attention, um, the press tends to focus on one or two people as the inventors of the internet when the story is actually much more interesting. So uh, in this series, um, I'll probably talk with a few of the most famous ones if I'm lucky, but I wanted to talk to the many, many people I've had the privilege of, uh, of knowing and observing um, as they built the internet. Um, so today we get the, um, the privilege of starting with a local celebrity, Doug Van Howling, who's a professor emeritus here at the uh, University of Michigan School of Information. Um, Doug is well known, very well known as an institution builder. His credits include Internet2, Merit Networks, NSFNet, and uh, quite a few other things. Um, my history with Doug began almost 40 years ago uh, with what I think was one of the first institutions he built. Um, I, this was the project that was called the Andrew Project at Carnegie Mellon. Um, this happened shortly after the famous uh, innovative period at uh, Xerox Park, where much of the modern world was invented, and I think um, was clearly inspired by some of it, especially since he recruited uh, a Park alumni as the director. But um, when I entered this project, I was sort of living in, in Doug's shadow in this institution um, that was just magical. Um, and amazing things happened there. And I never fully understood exactly how it came to be. But uh, to give you an idea, um, I was just looking to see what, what people think about Andrew 30 years later, 40 years later. And according to the Digital Higher Education Consortium of Texas, which presumably had no skin in the game, it would be difficult to overstate the importance of the Andrew Project in the history of digital higher education. This is one of Doug's least known accomplishments. Um, but I thought I'd start by asking him something um, I've always wondered, which is how did that magical environment that I got to work in for several years in the 80s come about? How, how, did, uh, how did IBM and CMU and all those uh, resources and people come together? And you know, what was the magic there? It was quite remarkable, as you said. Um, the key was the president of Carnegie Mellon University, uh, Richard Sire, who declared in 1981 that every student at Carnegie Mellon would be given a personal computer. And it was supplemented by the fact that Alan Newell, who was many of you probably know of him, uh, in the computer science department thought this was a great idea, but not just that way. It became very clear right away that it would take considerably more resources than Carnegie Mellon could expend 
to accomplish the objective. And I, uh, because I was at Cornell when uh, when Dick Sire made the declaration, they hired me uh, to see whether or not it was possible to get this done. I came there and we did a bake-off between all of the major manufacturers of, com of computers and personal computers at the time, the two leading companies were, of course, Digital Equipment Corporation, now departed, and IBM. Dick Seyard had a very close relationship uh, with the chief scientist at IBM. They deployed a group of, an extraordinary group of three people to live at Carnegie Mellon for six months to understand what this project would mean. And ultimately, uh, the arrangement was consummated with IBM, much to the disappointment of uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, who had had an extraordinary close and strong relationship with Carnegie Mellon for years before that. Um, it was quite extraordinary. That was a period when the major computing companies, quite different than today, under thought that the real advantages and advances in technology, computing technology, were happening on the university campuses, places like Carnegie Mellon and Stanford. And they wanted to bring that into their project, into their product family. And so IBM was willing to fund the whole project including substantial overhead, which allowed us to build the Information Technology Center building, now called Sired Hall, uh, at Carnegie Mellon, and launch that project you're talking about. It was an extraordinary, uh, it was an extraordinary effort. It, uh, it was, I, I was just a pure beneficiary of that. I sort of stepped into this environment where um, the resources seemed almost boundless and I was surrounded by incredibly creative people, um, but you came you came to Carnegie Mellon having already been um, uh, at a fairly high position at, at Cornell. Were you already on the internet at that point? When when did you first um, get involved with the internet? Or... Uh, I think it was pretty much when I came to Carnegie Mellon because Carnegie Mellon in that day was connected to the ARPANET. Um, uh, Cornell was not. Um, uh, Cornell got its networking through a prior networking uh, uh, facility that the universities put together called BitNet. Um, and we were very involved in that. And we also uh, were heavily involved in the X25 networking that was happening around the, around the, the world at that time. But the ARPANET was really, at that time, only available to major federal participants in Defense Department efforts, and Carnegie Mellon was one of those. So do, do you remember, um, well, I, I guess, I guess in your case, um, you know, with, with BitNet and other things coming first, do you remember your first um, impressions of uh, a, a global, uh, global network? What, what made you, um, who, who gave you the ideas of what might come and, and what did you picture? What, 
Was it an instant excitement? Did you did you instantly see that the world was about to change, or was it more gradual? When I was at Cornell, um, my uh, my academic home was the government department, and we had a course called the Urban Affairs Laboratory, which was built on a simulation of a city where students played roles. And uh, we built an interactive system to support that simulation. Um, that's when I first began to understand the power of interactive computing and broad access to interactive computing for educational purposes. Um, I think that was the beginning of my understanding that there was a big opportunity here for people to collaborate with one another uh, using uh, uh, computing technology. I, I'm always curious how much people uh, saw in their first impressions because I've become best known in my career for email, um, but uh, a dirty secret of mine is that the first time I ever was exposed to email, I thought it was the most useless thing I'd ever heard of. Um, and that was because I, at the time, um, was at Grinnell College, which had exactly one computer, and there was one computer room where all the terminals were, and so email was the equivalent of a post-it note on the wall. You could only see it if you went to that room. Um, so you know it's 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 hard to see the the big picture sometimes from the beginning. I, I you what you were talking about that was the late seventies when you got involved, or yes, yes. And you know did, you were probably doing remote job entry and file transfer. Was there was there more to it than that? <laughs> well. Um... We used APL, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, at the time, uh, Cornell was just bringing up the time-sharing operating system uh, option on uh, its IBM computer. And we were early pioneers in interactive computing using that. But uh, that was still mostly a standalone site. Yes, yes. Although. Uh, BitNet allowed file transfer and communication among all of the universities. It just wasn't fast and it didn't have much capability, much capacity. Were you using email that early? Oh, yes. Uh, so we had a we had a uh, extraordinarily talented uh, guy at uh, at Cornell by the name of Steve Verona, who uh, wrote a complete email system that worked uh, on uh on the ibm environment so um moving a little little uh little forward um you got into this just before the explosive growth began um or i guess it was just beginning um you were in a position to see how these things were being um managed much more than i was how did it how did it grow so fast and 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 how could we reproduce that today for other ambitious projects? Well, it's interesting. I don't believe we thought in 1987 when we learned we were going to be responsible for the NSFNet backbone in the United States, that it would become eventually the fabric that connected the world. And I have since then thought about why it was possible for that to happen. I think there were uh, three central things that enabled that. 
The first is that the internet protocols, I don't think we understood this at the beginning, but they're inherently scalable and they can support any application and communications infrastructure. It didn't matter whether uh, <laughs> it wouldn't quite work over uh, twine and cans, but anything else, uh, uh, a satellite connection or a radio connection or a fiber connection or whatever you need, you had, uh, the internet would work on that. Um, and because it was radically decentralized, every time a new client was added to the internet, the computing power available to the internet actually grew with the clients. So it didn't bottleneck. As it grew, it continued to provide the necessary power that was required to actually manage itself. Um, and it turned out that because it wasn't designed to support any one application, it actually worked for all the applications that were eventually uh, supported, including ones like we're using today. Um, so the organizing principle of decentralization, the scalability of the protocols, and then finally, I would say, you know, the early internet was built to connect researchers. And it was designed by computer scientists. And the people who used it during the first years were all at universities or research laboratories. And I have often been quoted as saying that only universities understand that great things can happen when no one is in charge. Um, so I was gonna ask you about that quote. That's, that's uh, certainly one of your best known quotes. Do, do you think you always understood that, or did, is that something that that came to you in retrospect, or or in the process of observing how it was growing? Um, I, I gained an understanding as a faculty member at Cornell that the power of the university environment is that it brings together intellectual entrepreneurs, all of whom are free to pursue what they think is the most important thing for them to do. Um, that's there aren't very many organizations in the world that have that characteristic. Um, I recall once talking to an IBM executive who was close to the University of Michigan, and he asked me, "So how does a university manage itself?" And uh, he said, "What does the president do?" And and I explained to him that all of the faculty were independent, could decide what they wanted to do. And as long as they were able to attract students and, and research funding, they were pretty much uh, their own small business. He said, he said to me, I can't imagine how I would ever manage that. And I said back to him, it's not managed. Mm -hmm. I guess uh, to some extent, the, the whole architecture of the internet reflects that it's also yes yeah i don't think i don't think the internet's radical decentralization could have emerged from other organizations all of the network protocols of the time were built around central management the at&t with its central switching offices uh ibm's uh sna with uh administrative control at the center 
uh, all of these uh, systems uh, depended on a central organization managing them. And of course, that wouldn't have scaled to a global left ever. Now, I've, I, I've often thought in recent years that, uh, that, that the people who are concerned that the internet is causing chaos of various kinds simply don't understand that the internet was born of chaos, and that it is <laughs> chaos incarnate down to the deepest levels. Um, but now, 40 years later, you, know, you obviously have a, a, a lot of uh, perspective that you didn't have then. Um, what, what, if, 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 you're 40, if yourself from 40 years ago could see today's internet, what do you think would most surprise him? I don't think we anticipated uh, two things that happened, a lot more, but two fundamental things that happened. The first was what I call the miracle of the internet, which is what happened when we made this global fabric available and then subsequently the browser was invented. Um, people all over the world understood that if they put their stuff on the internet, everyone in the world could see it. The result of that is everybody said, I want to be historically significant. I want to have my best work available to the whole world. And they all did it. They all volunteered their, their most precious work to the internet. And suddenly the internet became a source of knowledge and information that was unparalleled anywhere prior to this in human civil civilization. Um, I, I don't think we understood how strong a motivation would be provided by this global reach that the internet provided. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing that we should have seen, we should have known, was that the internet wasn't going to be used primarily for scientific purposes. <laughs> it was going to be used to connect people to one another. I mean, every time in history when a new communications technology has been invented, that's how it's been used. So, you know, Alexander Graham Bell thought that people would use the telephone to listen to concerts. Well, not so. <laughs> they, they used it to talk to one another. And the ARPANET, the ARPA thought that computer scientists would use the ARPANET to connect to computers. Well, they did to some extent, but they mainly used it for email. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what happened on the internet, uh, as we've seen, is an explosion of technology that allows people to interact with one another. Um, I don't think that we foresaw uh, uh, those innovations. But so the knowledge side is what we know today as Google and, and all of that. And the interaction side is what we know as Facebook and Twitter and all of that. Um, uh, and those applications uh, have, a lot of people think of the internet as being those applications. The internet of course is not those applications. The internet is the network that allows all those applications to operate. Uh, 
but I don't think we foresaw those applications. No, I I certainly didn't. I foresaw you know a couple of things in my my narrow range of vision, right? And uh, and I, I I do sort of feel like a lot of us who were working on the internet in those days were kind of like the blind man, not the blind man trying to identify an element, uh, an elephant, but the blind men building an elephant. You know, and I, yeah. I think this elephant ought to have a trunk and I'm going to see if I can get it to stick anywhere. Um, so I, I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the organizations that you created or helped create. Um, you know, I personally would love to talk about Andrew for an hour um, because it was uh, it, it was such a great time for me. And uh, and it was uh, in large part thanks to your efforts. But you're known for things like Merit and Internet2 and NSFNet. Um, Looking back on them, you know, I've often seen that the power law of attention and what people care about causes people to give you um, sometimes a lot of credit for something you don't think is important or not enough for something you do think is important. What do you view as your greatest achievement? And is, is there something you think um, that you don't get enough credit for? Not, not that I'm saying you're seeking credit or anything, but, you know, what don't we know about Doug Van Howling and, and what are you proudest of? I, I guess I've never really thought about that. Um, people do tend to assign to the visible leader of an organization more credit than that person deserves. In my case, um, there's no question that the NSFNet backbone, uh, which was the key time of innovation and productization of the internet. Uh, I only brought the folks together that were required to make that a success. And I don't mean to downplay that, but it's the people who were involved who somehow understood that they could not let this fail and work 724 if necessary and invested millions of, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, by the time NSFNet was completed, IBM had put $150 million into NSFNet. The, the result uh, was, I think, an enormous collaborative effort which, by the way, reached way beyond the backbone. Because remember, the internet at that time was hierarchical. The campus networks, and then the regional networks, and then the national backbone. People had to be pioneers and work at all of those levels uh, to make this a success. So it's, so I think in retrospect, I was very, very fortunate to have the chance to provide leadership for something whose time had come and for which people were willing to make extraordinary investments for success. And I just feel very fortunate to have been a part of that. Well, you know, um, I, I can't help saying you 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 said uh, to, to oversimplify. You said the main thing I did was bring people together to do the real work, but um, 
my experience of knowing you for all these years um, has has always been that you have um, among the best interpersonal skills of anyone I've ever seen. Um, I, I've always thought of you as a person who could, uh, you know, take mortal enemies and get them to somehow have a nice dinner together. Um, and and so I just I just wanted to say that I don't I think when you when you say that's all you did, you were minimizing um, something that was only possible because it's a core skill of yours, at least in my opinion. Um, is am I wrong there? Do you feel like you have um, that 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 bringing people together and making them comfortable working together is is one of your core skills that you brought to the table? Well, I I have always felt that I should do a much better job of that. I'm I'm terrible at remembering names. Um, I'm I'm basically sort of introverted. I I uh, but um, I think that that in this case at least. Um, I found it was possible to motivate people by a vision, uh, a vision of uh, creating something uh, extraordinary. And I think that happened at Andrew as well. Um, but remember, you know, the vision was really Dick Sires. I just sort of helped implement it. And, and the vision of the internet, you know, goes all the way back to Lick Lighter uh, at, at DARPA. Um, uh, I I was just fortunate to be at a time when the technology enabled a major thing to happen, and it was possible to bring people on board to the vision. So it's um, I, I'm glad you mentioned Licklider because I'll just make a, a little push here, a pitch here. Um, uh, the next interview in the series is almost certainly going to be with John Clenson, um, who I just found out recently actually was a. Uh, talking with Licklider when he was first coming up with these ideas. So we'll, we'll go even a little further back in history in the next one. Um, but, you know, you say that a lot of the vision for Andrew came from Dick Sired and, and so on, but you went on to build Merit, Internet2, NSFNet. Um, do you feel like in all those cases you were somehow following and enabling other people's visions? Or, I mean, w w one of those could have been dumb luck. Okay, but all of those clearly you brought some skills to the table, and I I personally think it's important that um, that students understand that the key skills here aren't all technical. It's not that you were the world's greatest coder or something like that. Yeah, I I, I can program, uh, but I'm not I'm not particularly good at it. Um, and uh, and my PhD, as you know, is in political science, uh, and uh, I can't claim to be uh, technically uh, uh, strong. Um, there's no question that uh, if if your objective is to have a major impact on the world, then you've got to build an organization that can enable that. You can't do it by yourself. Um, you've got to have a multiplier, and the multiplier is got to be good people who are willing to walk with you to do that. And um, in the case of the activities you talked about, uh, one thing I want to say is that all of these accomplishments that you talked about were done within the environment of uh, research universities. And research universities are just extraordinary organizations 
If you can find a way to harness even a small percentage of the resource of a, of a research university to go accomplish an objective, the power that you've got at your disposal is hard to overstate. Well, actually, um, you, you gave me a version of that message uh, when we met earlier this year, when I first came back to the university, um, you made me realize uh, just how much autonomy, basically this podcast happened without my asking permission of anyone, and I could have wasted a lot of time asking permission. Um, that's, that's a lesson I learned from you, I think. Um, I have another good friend who I believe you've met, Lee Stein, who likes to say, he's a businessman who makes deals. And he likes to say that every business deal dies three times on the way to the altar. Um, and I'm the deals you've made have been very different kinds of deals. You've been um, creating you know, nonprofit institutions with, with large funders. Is it the same there? What kinds of, what kinds of things almost killed NSFNet and Internet2 and, and Andrew and so on? What were the hardest parts of getting those to actually happen? That's, that's an interesting question. I, I, think, I think I would say in all of those cases that the real challenge for me at least was came when we had to execute. Mm -hmm. uh, getting the vision, getting the strategy, uh, enlisting the resources, um, that's essentially a marketing job. And, and um, as I say, I was fortunate enough to be at a time when people thought this was going to be a big thing. So marketing wasn't very hard. It wasn't so hard to bring people together to, to, to take these things on. But boy, getting them done. <laughs> um, uh, keeping the resources flowing, keeping the coalition together, uh, that that turned out to be uh, the big challenge, I think, in all of these cases. Yeah, I, um, I suspect you're being a little modest there because my own attempts to raise money and create institutions have, have been very difficult. But um, you know, obviously, we have somewhat different skill sets and, and you make it as sound as easy as you make it look, I guess. Well, but, but remember, a lot of your work has been in the commercial sector. And mine... Where, where there's a, a, a focus on eventual profit and so on. Mine has all been in the higher education and research environment, where the power of ideas carry an enormous amount of weight in uh, enabling uh, success. And I, I just think that it's a different environment. Uh, and at least at the time I was engaged, um, gave you more leeway uh, to get these things uh, put together than perhaps uh, going to venture capitalists and so on. But you were still competing with other institution builders for grant money and so on. Sure. But uh, yeah, yeah. We had to be good, but the grant money was there. Well, as I said, you, you, you make it sound as easy as you made it look, and I don't believe either of them, but we'll, we'll move on from that. Um, I know I, at least, have probably started 10 projects for everyone that I even completed, let alone became at all known for. Um, 
have you had any any notable uh I don't want to say failures, but things you tried to get going that, that didn't quite get going or um, that you wish had got had taken off? Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Um, so uh, uh, before we ever did NSFNet, uh, I, uh, I tried to get the National Science Foundation to uh, sponsor a satellite-based network. Um, uh, years earlier than that, while well, I was still at Carnegie Mellon, and I had no success with that. Um, I, uh, um, I guess it's fair to say that um, that uh, my most spectacular failure was when I uh, came to Cornell University as an assistant professor in government, and it became clear within a year or two that I wasn't going to publish enough to get tenure. So, so yeah, sure. Uh, but the good news is that you don't have to succeed at everything. Um, what you have to do is keep plugging away. So basically, you 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 succeeded at all this other stuff because being a professor was too hard. <laughs> Maybe so. Well, at least not suited to me. Yeah. Well, you know, this is. Um... Yeah, I, I think this is key to the institutions you've built is the recognition that that people have really different skills and uh, and 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 need to fit together in uh, in different ways. Um, if you could go, this is a sort of cliched question, but I I, I feel like I I have to ask it. If you could go back forty years, other than buying Apple stock, um, <laughs> what what would you like to tell your younger self? Oh goodness, I don't know. I guess. I believe that I should have paid more attention to connections with people over time. Hmm. I believe that I had real opportunities to build meaningful relationships with a number of people. And I got so busy with the thing that I was primarily focused on that I probably didn't maintain the connections I should have maintained. Um, and it would have been wonderful for me and wonderful for my uh, for the things that I wanted to accomplish if I had uh, built a stronger uh, and more sustained personal network with the people that I really value. That's um that's remarkable for me to hear. Uh, i'm I'm always telling my students, they can tell you, um, how important it is to develop these relationships and how networking is, it, how, how almost nothing gets done solo in, in the modern world. Um, you're one of the people I think of as the best examples of that. And to hear that your biggest regret is that you didn't do more of it um, is kind of astonishing. But I, I will definitely tell that to students in the future. Um, apparently there's no such thing as, uh, as, as too many good relationships. Um, so looking back on these last 40 years or so, longer um you you undoubtedly hear people talking about it in in the media in various times what what if anything do you hear that like makes you go no that's wrong or, or irks you in sort of the telling of the story of of how the internet was built are there any any peeves you have about how it's come down to us i guess i guess my biggest uh misgiving about the story is I think a lot of people think that the internet uh, basically evolved as a commercial innovation. 
Um, and uh, you and I both know that the internet was built for researchers. It was built by researchers. Uh, in the early days, uh, the internet grew because of the innovation that came from students and, and researchers and faculty members at universities and research laboratories. And it wasn't until 1995 when the internet had become, had con was already connecting a uh, hundred countries and had millions of users that uh, uh, commercial organizations uh, started to uh, focus on it. Um, now, having said that, I don't want to minimize the enormous contribution that IBM and MCI made uh, to enabling that. Uh, but they did not look at it, I think, uh, as their core business. They looked at it as something that would enable them to participate in their core business more effectively. Um, so uh, I think this, I think the focus that we now have on uh, the commercial aspects of the applications layer of the internet has led people to think that the internet is primarily uh, started as a commercial enterprise. It did not. No, it, it certainly did not. And uh, commerce has driven almost everything out. I agree. A uh, little distressing. Um, looking back uh, again on, on, on your time uh, in the internet, who would you cite? Like if, 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 if you were populating yourself a very small internet hall of fame, who are the, who are the real heroes in your eyes? And, and are there any villains you, you'd have any interest in naming? <laughs> well, my heroes uh, for the internet uh, development was, first of all, Eric Opperly, who is now deceased and who was the uh, president of Merit when I came to uh, Michigan. And he's the guy who was actually the principal investigator on the NSFNet project. Um, and then um, the key people who enabled that project uh, to be successful are partners um, in the state of Michigan, uh, the governor, Jim Blanchard, and Jamie Kinworthy, who put the uh, effort together uh, in at IBM, um, uh, Alan Weiss, uh, and and his colleagues, um, Alan regrettably departed us uh, a, a few months ago. Um, and uh, at uh, at MCI, um, uh, Dick Liebhaber, who was then the chief uh, uh, operating officer and technical lead at MCI, had the vision uh, to bring MCI in and. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, uh, the person who's in charge of networking at uh, the National Science Foundation, uh, Steve Wolf, who uh, uh, just took enormous personal risk leading uh, this effort within, uh, within NSF uh, that enabled us in this cooperative agreement uh, to go from a, a 10,000 or so people using the internet to millions of people using the internet. 
So, you know, when I first started talking about doing this podcast, everyone I talked to suggested more names, including you, of people I should talk to. Um, and now the names you just named, there were a couple that I didn't know yet. And of course, I can't, you know, some of them are deceased, but I, I feel like um, the more of these podcasts I do, the more people I'll want to interview. I don't, I don't really see any end to it there. It's an endless group. Yeah, well, it was, it, it, it was a lot of people involved. Um, it, 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 I'm not going to press you to name any any villains. Um, you're 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 a cheery enough person. You may not actually have any, but I I wouldn't really expect you to to cite any. Um, when you look at the internet we're leaving behind for our grandchildren, um, what do you what do you think are the biggest challenges, and, and what worry what worries you or excites you about the future of the internet? Well, as I said, um, the the internet as I define it is the uh, network infrastructure. Um, and I'm very worried about uh, the way in which nation states are fragmenting that infrastructure um, and uh, finding ways to, as I said, the power of the internet at the beginning was it was global. And you put something on the internet, it was available everywhere. That's being increasingly broken uh, by nation state actors who are trying to restrict access uh, to the internet within their uh, within their uh, boundaries. Um, but my bet is that most people don't think of the internet the way I do. They think of it uh, in terms of the applications layers. And uh, at the applications layer, I am uh, deeply troubled by the way in which this highly decentralized platform has come to depend on some very large organizations that, uh, that I think work hard to make sure that they absorb innovation uh, outside of their boundaries, uh, rather than uh, welcoming uh, challenging innovation uh, as, as competition. Um, the, the fact is that the internet and its applications have now become crucial infrastructure for the way our world works. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised, I suppose, that that means that all of the bad things that are happening in the world will happen in the internet, and all of the good things that are going on in the world will happen in the internet, because it is crucial infrastructure. But, you know, I do wish that we found a way to have more good and less bad. Uh, and and uh, I think the path to that is uh, probably a recognition that we need to stimulate more decentralized effort to support innovation. And we, uh, we badly need uh, to think of the internet not as a commercial set of activities, but as crucial infrastructure. Uh, back, in the, back in the day when I was a graduate student and then a faculty member, we talked about public goods, uh, uh, resources for the public that are crucial for the public to, uh, to realize its goals. The internet has become very much a public good. 
in terms of its role in society, but we don't manage it like a public good. We manage it like a set of private goods. And we're, we're going to have to come to terms with the disparity between the way that the internet is applications are actually managed and run and the role they actually wind up playing in civilization. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, and I found myself wondering when you were talking about the um, the overpowering role that commerce has taken and, and commercial entities have taken, was um, was that one of the factors um, underlying the creation of Internet 2? I, mean, I, know, I know you were trying to um, make more space for more alternatives, but on the other hand, it was commercially funded, right? Was, was it not? I'm, I'm not sure I have that right. Oh, you you have it wrong. Okay. So Internet, oh. 2, Internet 2 was funded entirely by the university members. Oh, okay. they, 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 they all paid a membership fee plus a fee to connect to the network. Um, and that money was used to buy uh, networking services and equipment uh, from uh, the major companies that were then providing that. So uh, that was the the commercial explosion on the internet had happened, right? It was in the process. You know, all of the uh, like AOL and all it had had begun to make the internet available globally, but the problem was that in higher education, we'd gotten used to the notion of a high-performance network connecting our universities, and those guys couldn't provide that. Um, and so we had to build something to fill that gap. That's what would internet to. It was a not-for-profit. It was uh, funded entirely uh, by its members. And uh, so obviously my memory is, is faulty in some ways, but I remember it as trying to create more space for um for university innovation i guess yes okay so so yes. i mean that that was the 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 goal was to make it possible for uh the scholars and researchers and creative people at universities to do the things with the internet that they thought they wanted to do and you you had to have a different network infrastructure funded differently in order to enable that uh, one of the things that I was most excited about, uh, about Internet 2 was, you know, we built this network so the physicists and the chemists and all those guys could move enormous data sets fast uh, because that was critical. But it turned out that Internet that allowed that meant that a uh, cello student uh, at one place could get a master class from a cellist at the Philadelphia Symphony. Um, so it wasn't just science. It was a whole set of creative things that, of course, come out of the university. So, so thinking about the institutions you've created and you know, the, the, the things you're known for, I, I, one lesson that I learned from the Andrew Project, back when we were both, in, both young men, um, when I came to the end of my role in that, I was struck by the fact that I couldn't really say that it had been a success for me because I had done such a poor job of uh, defining what my goals were. So, you know, I can look at it now and say, you know, it introduced all these new things and it led to mime and so on. But at the time, I just had these very vague notions that, that cool things were gonna happen and, and, and you can never, uh, never accomplish all the cool things you think of. So I'm, I'm wondering if, um, 
if you look back on all of these uh, things with equal satisfaction, or if, if, if some of them you know, give you more pleasure in retrospect uh, to be known by? I actually don't think of, I, I, I don't rank them in. I, I just, I just think, you know, I'm, I was extremely fortunate to be in a place, a research university for all of my career uh, during a time when so much innovation took place in the field I was operating in. And I just felt, I just sort of felt like I was fortunate enough to catch one wave after another. And I haven't, I haven't ever thought very much about which way was better. <laughs> it was, it, I, I was just very fortunate. That, that, that sounds healthy. But, you know, you, you say you were in the right place at the right time in some ways, but yeah, political science professor. Yeah. So how did, how, how did you end up making that change? I mean, you said it was when you were at Cornell, but, but uh, I mean, I guess I sort of think you think of you as a, a consummate politician of the internet, but you know, back when when you were a, a political scientist, there there really was no internet, and so you couldn't be that. So you invented the role. How did that happen? Well, uh, it was part of my my early failure. Uh, so the reason I didn't write articles and do the things that are necessary to get tenure is because I uh, had this notion that computers could be used to teach. Um, and I had colleagues who wanted to know how to use computers, but they didn't know what to do. So they came to me for help. And so I wound up spending all of my time uh, either helping people using computers or using computers to help uh, advance instructional objectives. And um, uh, once, and, and so I, I sort of became known as a person who could help other people do things with computers and was doing interesting things with computers. And so when uh, Cornell Computer Services decided they needed somebody to uh, lead their user services organization, they asked me if I'd be willing to do that. And because I knew I wasn't gonna get tenure, <laughs> I, I, it, it was pretty clear to me that was a good alternative. It actually came with a little bit of a salary increase. So uh, I, I, I wound up uh, going to only a quarter time on the faculty and three quarter time in Cornell Computer Services. And that was the beginning of, uh, of, of going over to the dark side, I guess. Well, I, I always tell my students that, um, that life is full of surprises and that the, the best course is to uh, prepare yourself with as many skills as possible and then you know, watch for the right opportunities. Um, and you, you clearly did that. Um, I, I feel like I should ask whether you have any other advice that you would, would give to the, um, to the students watching this who are hoping to have careers at least a, a fraction as impressive as yours. I think the most important advice I have is, is to welcome change and to look at change, not as a problem, but an opportunity. Okay, that's nice, simple advice. <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, I had, uh, uh, well, actually, we should, we, we should take a few minutes and see if anyone in the... Uh, um, yeah, I was wondering, I, I wanna hear what people have to say, what questions I, I, they've got. 
I didn't even think of it until now and it's near the end. Um, uh, Nat Bulky asks, uh, what insights from your graduate work had the greatest influence on your approach uh, to building institutions? And uh, he asks, role of Eleanor Olstrom's work? And I don't even know who that is. So, so Eleanor Olstrom was my PhD advisor. Uh, she uh, won a Nobel Prize in economics a little while ago. Um, uh, she uh, was the one who caused me to think most seriously about uh, the role that not-for-profit, non-governmental organizations could play in solving important social problems. Um, and uh, I, I owe her an immense debt. Okay. Um, and then uh, Lee Liming asks, um, you identified two important qualities that went into NSFNet's success, decentralized control, what I called chaos, and the human desire to be heard and noticed. In retrospect, these not only made today's internet possible, but they left the door open for mass disinformation. How do you view disinformation in the context of internet development? Is it a new thing or was it always with us? And were there lessons learned in the early internet that might help us deal with disinformation today? So you've asked a question that uh, causes me to at least momentarily get on a soapbox. Good. Um, I, I think the central failure of the way the internet has developed as uh, applications and the, the applications on the internet have developed is they've been based around generating revenue through advertising. Um, and if, if I had, and I don't, unfortunately, if I had a prescription for uh, the internet, it would be that uh, applications have to be supported not by advertising. Now, I understand that has a set of, the, the wonderful thing about uh, advertising supported applications is that they appear to be free to the consumer, which means that they don't discriminate against individuals who uh, don't have much money. Uh, but uh, the other side of that is that uh, advertising-based applications tend to drive the companies that depend on that uh, to seek out uh, the most disturbing, the most um, uh, controversial uh, content because they know that will drive more eyes to their platforms. And I, I don't know how we could have prevented that thinking back to the early internet, but I will now climb down off my soapbox. Well, you know, I'm not going to argue with you on that because you may recall that uh, um, when, I, uh, when I started First Virtual, which was the first internet payment system, I used to tell uh, potential investors that the only way this or something like it won't take over the world is if the internet turns out to be totally advertising driven. Uh, <laughs> I definitely didn't see that coming either. Um, we're coming to the end of the hour, um, but I had, uh, well, actually, I think we have, well, that's just a comment, not a question. Um, I had one question that I absolutely have to ask you, but I wanted to save for last. Um, you and I have each lived um, most of our working lives in the same two wonderful cities, probably the, the most important centers of internet innovation between the coasts, Pittsburgh and Ann Arbor. And 
I guess uh, you've been, you and I have both been in Ann Arbor for quite a while now. So I have, this is a two-part question. Actually, it's, it's sort of a, a three-part question. Well, first of all, what do you miss most about Pittsburgh? And what would you miss most if you left Ann Arbor? In both cases, the people. I, I, I love my colleagues in Pittsburgh and I'm still close to some of them. I just visited Jim and Susan Morris a few months ago. Um, uh, my friends here in Ann Arbor, uh, they're, they're, they're wonderful. And uh, so uh, the two, two places are so different. Uh, but the other thing I would say is, and I wouldn't miss them, one for the other if I moved, but in both cases, both Carnegie Mellon and University of Michigan are such extraordinary uh, environments for innovation. Uh, and it's such a pleasure uh, to uh, live in that kind of an environment. It is that, but I'm still going to put you on the spot with one more specific thing. <laughs> okay, your last meal, is it going to be the Oakland original or Blimpy Burger? Uh, I, I wouldn't choose either of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fair enough. Sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's, it's still the Oakland original. I'm, I, I love it, but it's got to be the Oakland original. And we did just get one last question, and we have another minute left, so uh, why not? Um, do you agree that the primary impediments to adopting to the adoption of the internet were too many competing network, competing network protocols and the lack of standardization and support of, by vendors of TCP IP, as opposed to the long list of other alternatives that's here in the question, um, and the lack of interoperability of email? Um, were those, he's asking if those were the primary impediments. I'm inclined to ask, were there any impediments? It seemed to grow so fast in spite of those things. Well, in retrospect, um, the competition for the development of the internet was what you cite. Uh, the uh, work on international standards and the uh, proprietary uh, networks uh, and the large corporations that profited from those, uh, they did their best. Uh, to uh, advance uh, their own agendas. Um, the reason they didn't succeed was a combination, I believe, of two things. The first was that uh, these large organizations, whether they were international standards organizations or corporations, uh, uh, were simply too focused on control and bureaucracy. And the internet was not either of those. And the second um, is that uh, they didn't take the internet seriously. So I don't think IBM and Digital Equipment Corporation and uh, AT&T, all the folks who sort of opposed the internet, they sort of relaxed and said, you know, this thing is something that a bunch of computer scientists have developed and the scientists use, but it's never going to have a larger impact. We don't really need to worry about it. We just need to go about our business. Wrong. 
Yeah, I, I, I certainly agree that um, that had it been taken more seriously, there would have been more impediments. Yeah. Um, well, listen, um, we've come to the end of the hour. I am really grateful to you for spending this hour and for being my uh, my first guest in, in what I hope will be a, a long series. And uh, um, I know if we were in a room, everybody would give you a large round of applause right now. But I'll I'll just have to say thank you, Doug. Really appreciate well, it's, it. It's been a real pleasure, and it's always good to 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 think about these issues. I I uh, I find myself uh, more and more uh, reflecting on the extraordinary uh, time that we have lived in and the the wonderful things and the regrettable things that have resulted from the developments in information technology over those years. It has been a, a wild and delightful ride for me as well. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Doug. And have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you for the opportunity.